Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Today is Kira Copperman, and our topic is healing after miscarriage and infertility. Kira Copperman is a social worker and the president of KBC Consulting, a healthcare consulting firm that specializes in helping medical professionals improve their frontline customer service. Prior to KBC Consulting, she was the practice manager for a large fertility center in Manhattan entitled Reproductive Medicine Associates of New York. In 2006, she was honored by Resolve, the National Infertility Support Organization, with the Friend of Resolve Award. Because of her dedication and commitment to the organization, her experience with patients dealing with the emotional side effects that can accompany infertility had a profound effect on her and was one of the main reasons she created KBC Consulting. Welcome to the show, Kira. Thank you very much. Hi, Kira. It's great to have you on. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, could you tell us about a little bit about your personal experience with pregnancy to start the show? Sure. Um, I am fortunate to have twins that are 11 and an 8-year-old. They're all boys. And um, my husband is actually a fertility specialist, which led me to work in the field. Um, and we call the twins our little occupational hazards because um, they were actually as a result of some fertility treatments that we had to go through. Um, and being in the field, you, of course, know too much. Um, you know what can go wrong. You know the stories that you see and hear. And um, even though it didn't take us that long to get pregnant, it was still a very emotionally charged experience for both my husband and I. And um, we definitely um, gained a new understanding for what couples go through when they are trying to conceive. Mm-hmm. And uh, the problems they go through when they really have huge problems in conceiving, right? Absolutely. I mean, I worked um, at RMA of New York for seven years, and my husband's been a part of it uh, since its inception. And the, you know, the stories are numerous about um, the trials and tribulations and the emotional, um, the emotional upheaval people go through when they're trying to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think having infertility. And then having miscarriages, which I have had both of, is a whole nother thing because with infertility, you are trying so hard to get pregnant and you're going through so many treatments, as you know, Kara, firsthand, and then you finally get pregnant and it's, it's so, such a miracle and so long overdue and you're so excited and to lose that pregnancy and wonder, am I going to be able to get pregnant again? Well, I think what happens with patients is they just really tap into all of their resources. They tap into their emotional resources, their physical resources, their financial resources when they're going through the experience of even just getting to that positive pregnancy test, whether they have to go through in vitro fertilization or shots or drugs or anything that gets them to that point, the goal becomes that positive pregnancy test. And so when they reach that moment, and you can buy them at the store now, so you can take them every exactly. five minutes, right? You can, you can know very quickly whether you're pregnant. And so you reach that, that moment of, yes, I, it's positive, and yes, I'm pregnant. And you took so long to get there mm-hmm. that the, the bonding and the, and the excitement and the, basically your future gets planned very quickly because you, you do get to that point and get that positive pregnancy test. So to have a miscarriage after that experience, it's, 
so devastating because of the fertility treatments, you, in your heart and mind, know that you have to go through it again. Mm-hmm. And, and, like and it can cost, what, $25,000? Well, no, you know, it depends on what the treatment options are and depends on the insurance coverage. But, yeah, it's um, financially there are limitations to how many times people can repeat the process. And, you know, emotionally, again, with the, with miscarriages, it can take a while for people to emotionally recover to the point where they're ready to try again. Mm-hmm. So it's um, that that double whammy, for lack of a better word, of just um, it's not just a miscarriage, but it's a miscarriage with the knowledge that this was such an extreme experience to get here. I have to go through that extreme experience again. Well, and like you said, you've, you've lost your future when you miscarry because I miscarried twice in my first trimester, and the minute I found out I was pregnant, I had planned my entire future. Right, you're I there. Mean, yep. you, you visualize your life and the way it's going to look, and then you have a miscarriage, and it's devastating because your whole future, has, you've been thinking about this. And people often talk about, you know, the dream of becoming a parent, and it's you have that moment of the pregnancy test, and it's, oh, my dream has come true, mm-hmm. and you still have to get through the pregnancy. So it's um, it's just a horrible experience for people. And, you know, I was looking um, at some of the latest statistics on how common this is, and I know on one of your other shows they had discussed one million families a year mm-hmm. um, experience miscarriage. And it's really interesting how inconsistent the information is, but um, from WebMD, which was reviewed by the Cleveland Clinic, uh, OBGYN group, 50% of all pregnancies, um, they say, end in miscarriage, but some are before the people even know they're pregnant. My goodness, we, it certainly is you are not alone, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the idea that your body's failed you? You know, or that you are less than or that you did something wrong, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, that is a very common feeling for women who miscarry um, that it's for so- somehow their fault. Yeah. And there's a lot of myths out there that they were too stressed out, they were too preoccupied, they exercised too much, um, they lifted their older child or something like that, that it was their fault. And there's really no research that supports any of those. Um, ideas. Okay, that's good to know, Kara. There's no research that supports any of those ideas. I had a lot of those feelings, too. I drank too. I drank a Diet Coke, or what did I do wrong? So the research is not showing that it's any of that. We don't know for sure. No, what the research shows is that um, much of it is chromosomally related, mm-hmm. um, age-related um, miscarriages. Um, it's, you know, other kind of more physiological things like the uterus. Um, there's some something wrong with someone's uterus, and different things that can be treated. But it's um, you know, it has not been proven to be caused by stress or, or things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Well, it's amazing. In war zones, people are you know having babies. That's and, a good point. And they're you and, and th- when you read about the past Indians where people uh, they migrated and they, you know, would just stop and have their baby and move on, I mean, mm-hmm. it, you know, it seems that uh, they're pretty hardy. We're pretty hardy, actually, aren't we? We are. <laughs> we definitely are and pretty resilient and uh, ha- can get through these, these types of experiences. The thing about having miscarriages after infertility is you've got this fear that you will never, possibly that's the only pregnancy you'll ever be able to have. 
Absolutely. There's such a fear. Maybe this is it for me. Maybe I'll never have children. I'll never go in to have another child. Absolutely. And what about this? You were talking about age uh, related. Um, there's a lot of anger out there. I'm hearing uh, about uh, women in this generation that are in their 40s now who were told that they could have it all and they've waited. Mm-hmm. And uh, and doctors have only recently been saying you better you know get on with it. Uh, it seemed like before they were people weren't worried about it too much. Is that right? Well, I think that there's a lot of misinformation that's been uh, out there. I think with the celebrity pregnancies of women who are in their late 40s, even 50s sometimes, who their pregnancies get a lot of media attention, and um, it's never or sometimes not revealed exactly what they did to get pregnant. Um, it, it leads the public to believe that it's possible to naturally conceive at that advanced age. So mm-hmm. um, so there actually has been a big push um, amongst the OBGYN community and the infertility community to educate women about what the, the reality of the situation is, which is um, for women under 35, if it takes more than a year to conceive, you should see a specialist, and women um, over 35 it's six months. I, I was saying that I thought that there's quite a bit of anger out there with women who are not getting pregnant who are older because they kind of thought that they could do it all. And, and I think well, we I all thought that, they could do it all. Well, and they thought, okay, I'm healthy. I'm phys- this is what I thought. I'm healthy. I'm physically fit. And if I want it bad enough, I should be able to get pregnant. There should be no reason why I can't get pregnant. Not taking into account that I was approaching 40. And Kara, I've heard someone say old eggs. Is that right? Yes. Um, and again, I'm talking as a professional who's worked in the fertility industry for the last eight years, but not as a medical professional. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm citing information that's been um, available to the public, um, but not as a medical professional. Um, in terms of age, um, yes, it does the, the chromosomal abnormalities or the chance of having a chromosomally abnormal child is affected by age. Mm-hmm. And do we know what age that starts at, or is there any? Um, I really, I don't want to. That's too tough a question. A- yeah. After 40, it, it progressively gets. It gets more. less, uh, the, the percentage of women who are able to conceive naturally gets lower and lower after age 40. And, Which and is so I, interesting. I'm sorry. It's so interesting because I went to my doctor, and I was almost 40, and I had secondary. I couldn't get pregnant. And I've been trying for over a year, and he said to me, I quote, Heidi, you're not even 40 yet. You're young. Okay, well, that's, that's so interesting to me because the reality was that I was almost 40, and that isn't really true. I mean, he should have, you know, in hindsight, I'm thinking I should have been a little more proactive. Well, I think that the the conventional wisdom, and it is, you know, based on medical information as well, is that under 40, it's not as much of a decline as over 40. Mm-hmm. But it still is an issue, and it's still, um, in terms of miscarriages, um, they are more likely to, co- to occur with older women who are older. Do you have any idea the percents over 40 of miscarriage? I do not. I imagine I they're quite high. Well, this fits in a bit with an email. I'd like to talk to an, uh, about an email that we got. And I just want to say to my audience, we love your emails and, and blogging and all that, so uh, keep sending them in about the show. Uh, it was an email from Hannah from Bedford, New York. 
She said, I saw that you were going to have a show on miscarriage. I have had six miscarriages. I'm over 40, and my husband wants to adopt. I want to try again, but he is in favor of adoption since our last fetus was found to have some genetic problems. Do you think I'm wrong to try again? Wow, Hannah. Uh, First of all, we're sorry to hear about six miscarriages. Mm -hmm. That is tough. But what do you think, Kara? Well, I think that it's this is a great example of um, the difficulties that couples have when they're dealing with these types of issues because, you know, many times they're not on the same page. Mm-hmm. And it is a couple issue. It's something that they have to work out together because it's a decision that they're going to both have to live with. So my recommendation for them is to... Um, have some more conversations with each other, maybe have a facilitator help them, um, whether it's a therapist, a friend, or somebody who can help them come to some conclusions and really to understand each other and what their motivations are and why this is something that's important to her versus why this is something that's important to him. Um, Couples deal with these types of situations just very, it's an individual situation, but it's a couple that has to handle it, so it becomes very challenging. Yeah, I would imagine it's very challenging. Yeah, yeah and I like the idea of a facilitator if needed, because the reality is, you know, these kind of issues, as you know, Kira, get really heated, can get very heated, and oftentimes, you know, there's not that much room for compromise. I mean, for example, if somebody wants a child and somebody doesn't, Right. What's the compromise? A half a child? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) so. And if a woman really feels like she wants to carry the baby, that's tough. I mean, you can do the donor egg, right? Absolutely. And that's also make sure you know what all your options are before before you're making decisions because there may be that other option that would work for both of you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, And can help you move forward. So, I mean, that kind of brings up a great point in terms of dealing with miscarriage and loss, especially after infertility treatments and how men and women um, sometimes deal with it differently and grieve differently after the loss. I'm sure in your experience you've... Well, what have you seen with that about the differences in men and women and the loss? Well, I think that it's been a very interesting experience because we have run support groups um, at our facility and feel very strongly about supporting the patients through this emotional side of fertility and not just the the medical side. And what I've seen um, in my exposure to these couples who are dealing with this is it's for the men, it sometimes can be very isolating because they're not physically experiencing... Um, the process, and they want to help, and they want to do the right thing and say the right thing, but we're all in uncharted territories here, you know, when the, when these types of things are happening, especially when it's, they're trying to have their first pregnancy. So that lack of control and that lack of ability to help um, becomes very frustrating to the men. Especially when the women are on hormones, too, and they can be really erratic, right? Absolutely. The mood swings are definitely, um, can be part of the experience, which does not make communication um, that easy. So, I mean, my recommendation to couples is to really um, find those moments, those calm moments where you can communicate with each other of how you're feeling and really communicate what your personal needs are so that 
if the woman is in need of being alone or being with girlfriends or just uh, crying or needing a hug or whatever, that she can tell her husband what she needs and that he can respond accordingly and not assume that he knows and not think that he should know. And, and not think that he should fix it because he really can't fix well, it. Well, exactly. And for her, yes, and for him to basically do the same thing with her is this, I, I'm having trouble because I want to help you and I want to fix this and I don't know how. So um, for him to be part of the process as much as possible. And again, for him to say what his needs are too. It's um, the process, especially after miscarriage, can be so emotionally driven for both of them that it's sometimes hard to find that common ground. You know, we've got an email here that I want to read to you because I think it really comes up with this. It's from Ron from Scottsdale, Arizona, and he says, I told my wife I was going to email you on pregnancy loss. It really makes me angry that when we had a baby who died uh, at birth, my wife got the most support. People would ask me, how's your wife doing? Guys at work didn't even want to talk about it. Female stuff. I lost my son, too. Any thoughts? Well, it just goes to show it is uh, it's a couple issue. Mm-hmm. Definitely not just just the woman, um, but I think it's it comes from people not really knowing what to say and what to do, and mm-hmm. and maybe just not being aware of how much he was hurting. Well, with miscarriage, don't you think that they are quote common enough that people kind of blow them off? Well, I think that that's one of the the big issues with people not speaking about it and not seeking support for it because they almost feel like they're supposed to be able to get over it quickly, Mm -hmm. especially after fertility treatments when it's such an early detection of the pregnancy that had it not been a fertility treatment, they wouldn't have known they were pregnant anyway. They might have thought it was a late period. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of belittling of the experience that people do because it's seen as kind of part of the process. So, I mean, that's part of the reason why um, I'm so passionate about my work that I do with healthcare staff is to really make sure that they understand that every patient is their own experience and their own life and their own loss, if there happens to be a loss, and should be treated accordingly and not just treated like another person who maybe has a, you know, medical issue. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking that uh, sometimes people, as I said, miscarriages are enough that somebody's like, well, my sister had one or, well, so-and-so had one, and I know how you feel and, and I know what you need. Yeah. There's, I'm sure there's a lot of that out there. Um, there's a, there's some, some common phrases that people use after someone miscarries that are unfortunately not always the right thing to say, but things like, oh, it's a blessing in disguise. or It probably was damaged or something. Right. That, that's you know, maybe you can try again. At least you weren't showing or, you know, something. They're trying to find that silver lining. Mm-hmm. At least you know you can get pregnant. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily make the person who's experiencing the miscarriage feel better at all. Except that the, mis- the person might use some of those things for themselves, and if they do, that's fine. That's their thing. You know? Right. Initially, but it, I think the best thing you can do, speaking from personal experience, for somebody to had a miscarriage is acknowledge and validate how hard it must be and how sorry you are that they've had a loss. Mm-hmm. And from then, eventually, then you can go into other areas. But that's so important because it's not done enough, yeah. I don't think. I was just thinking the individual might, might use that for themselves. Right. 
saying, mm-hmm. um, you're you right, know, you're I right. can get pregnant again. Well, yeah, I think but, that's But that's not something you should be saying to them. Right. <laughs> you know, but then you shouldn't argue with them either. You know, sometimes people, if someone says, uh, well, I can get pregnant again or whatever, then they say, yeah, but what about this one? Don't you want to talk about this one, you know, or something? So one of our guests well, said, let's not, what was it, Heidi, be a dentist and probe? Right. <laughs> let's be or be an open uh, clamshell and expect him to expose everything. Let's let him be where they are. Well, I think what you know when I was um, now that I'm in my consulting business, but before when I was running the practice, I would tell the staff if someone miscarried and they were kind of in the exam room and they had just found out the information um, to even just sit with them to even just sit with the patient and kind of be there with them so they know someone is supporting them and react to whatever their needs might be. I like that, react. It doesn't, they don't need to say anything. Silence is okay. It's really a wonderful tool sometimes if someone's just dealing with their information and, and processing what just happened. Um, but, you know, that that's kind of the advice that I would give to anyone who is, um, friendly with someone or a family member who has miscarried is that sometimes it's just letting them know that you're there for them um, mm-hmm. and that's enough. And they'll tell you or they'll, uh, you know, if you, they can let you know what their needs are because everyone's going to go through this process in their own way. I remember we had a friend when Scott died who just sat there while we ate, didn't say anything. She didn't even eat with us. And one other time she sat and answered the telephone. She never said anything. Sally, you know, Heidi. Wonderful. Yeah. I remember that. And, and, and then I remember that 25 years later as yeah, being I do a too. highlight. <laughs> right. I do, too. And my, my friend's um, husband died in 9-11, mm. and her brother, who she wasn't that close to, but he called her every day wow. without fail and just said, hey, how's it going? Mm-hmm. And whether she felt like talking, she would tell him what was going on. And if she didn't feel like talking, she'd say... You know what, I don't feel like talking. Let's talk tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Well, Kira, before we get I wanted to talk a little bit about the extended family, and, and uh, I have a feeling they kind of get left out on this miscarriage thing. But um, uh, before we do that, I want to talk to you a little bit about your business and what is it exactly that you're doing. Well, I am working, doing workshops and seminars for um, healthcare workers that are working with patients. Um, my idea for this business came about because I feel like with the managed care world and how busy certain practices are, um, the ability for healthcare workers to not get burnt out and to provide really important um, patient-focused care to patients that are going through various healthcare issues and needs, just to help them stay focused, stay motivated, um, and for patients to really get that compassion and that empathy and that respect that they need when they're going through various treatments. You know, that's interesting because during the last segment we were saying that just, and you were saying that just being there and sitting with somebody, mm-hmm. what a relief for healthcare workers right. to go in and think that they can just sit down. Well, absolutely. And, and absolutely. be there. And, and, and if, if they're trained, like, if, if healthcare workers are trained, it's going to make their life a lot easier if they know what the patients need. And um, how, if somebody wanted to hire you and have you come into their organization and talk to their staff about um, what's needed, you know, at this point, what, how would they get in touch with you? Well, I've been working with office managers, administrators, and physicians, um, and they can go to my website at 
kbcconsult.com or kiracopperman.com and contact me through that. Um, and I usually go and meet with the heads of the organization, find out what their specific needs are, um, whether it's a workshop on how to deal with difficult patients, it's a workshop on how to provide consistent customer service. Um, we can talk about addressing those needs with their staff. And, um, again, it's really helping the healthcare staff understand what the patient's going through and the anxiety and the fear that goes into going into really any healthcare setting or dental setting um, and helping the staff understand that and at the same time the staff members understanding themselves and their own abilities and their own uh, trigger points when it comes to um, working with patients um, to make sure that they can maintain that focus and they can really help um, the patients relieve some of that anxiety and get through their treatment. Right. Well, that's a great thing. Well, let's talk a little bit uh, with the infertility issues about the extended family because, you know, I'm thinking uh, grandma, uh, as a grandma, when Heidi gives, gives me the little booties or something, I'm, you know, to tell me that she's pregnant, I am excited. Right. Well, especially with Thanksgiving coming up. Mm-hmm. Because that's the family gathering, and if someone right. didn't know about the miscarriage or someone um, says the wrong thing, um, it, it can be a very... Or if you're around Thanksgiving, you're around other babies, too, right? Yeah, absolutely. If well, and the reality is, when, when I had my miscarriage, the first one, I really appreciated it because when I told my mother that I had a miscarriage, she started to cry, which was really wonderful and for me because I felt very acknowledged, and she said... I've lost a grandchild, so it was her loss as well. Right. So, and that's what we need to think about with extended family. There's, there's a losses. Many people are having loss when you miscarriage, when you have a miscarriage. And people care if they know. And that's another thing. Um, if, if you haven't told people and, uh, you know, and you're down, I mean, they don't know why. Right. You know. And so how can people... Extended family, like, for example, on Thanksgiving, most help somebody that's had infertility and miscarriage. What, I'm sorry, what is it? On the say? person, right? How can, how can people out there on Thanksgiving, how can extended family members help somebody that's going through infertility treatments and miscarriages and, and just had a miscarriage? It I mean, probably I, depends on the person, right? It depends on the person and your relationship with that person and, you know, the the experiences you've had with that person in the past. And I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in reactive help in this type of situation because sometimes um, people people's needs are so different. I like this reactive that you're in a second time. It's, you said it, it is great. So you react, you respond to what they say or, right, and or it, the way they, if they're down, maybe you can put your arm around them or something. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I think that when we try to second-guess ourselves to figure out exactly what we should say and exactly how we can say the right thing to make that person feel better, I think it just, it, it's not always going to work. It's not always going to have that, that happen. Um, so I think it's, very, it's a very challenging thing for people to go through. And sometimes, um, and this is another suggestion, sometimes there's a really close relative to the person who's miscarried, maybe a sister or the um, cousin or mother or somebody who can be the go-to person of what should I do and how should I, 
how should I handle this and have the person who's experienced the miscarriage tell that person. That's a great idea, be an advocate this Thanksgiving uh, or ask if you're out there and you are concerned about the situation you're going to go into, pick a family member to advocate for you. Yes, and tell them, you know what, I'm just, I really don't want to talk about it and I'm, I'm just feeling really down, just let me get through it. Or, you know, it's okay if somebody asks me. I'd rather have them come out with it and, you know, talk to me about it like instead of pretending it didn't happen. Um, but being really explicit with somebody who can act on your behalf and let people know what to do. And it may not. It may be if you're out there listening to us, you're a male in the family, pick somebody to advocate for you and let them go around and say how, how you're feeling about the pregnancy loss or the infertility issues or whatever. And uh, we can't respond if we don't know. We, Adi and I have often said you really have got to teach people how to treat you. Right, or how, how you to want be, to be treated. How to be good grief support. Yeah. And, and Kira, you said this before, not everybody wants to talk about it. Some people like to you know, grieve in private. They don't want to discuss it with everybody. Right. I mean, there's wonderful support networks out there. There's uh, Internet chats. There's hospital-based programs. There's doctor's office-based programs where you can go and talk to other people. But if you are the type of person or if you are grieving and about your miscarriage and want to be alone, that, that's a very normal response, too. That's an okay response, too. It's, um, people just react differently to these types of okay, things. Okay, let's talk about being alone. That's going to take me into another thing I wanted to talk about, which is what about sex drive after the loss of pregnancy? Well, I'm doing infertility, right? Oh, yeah, well, infertility, either way, loss of pregnancy, mm-hmm. infertility, any kind of thing that disrupts that relationship with your spouse. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, infertility in general, you know, at a certain point, depending on how long you've been trying, um, I've heard from some patients can become a bit of a chore because mm-hmm. it's no longer about the romance. Um, it's about procreation. Um, but in terms of after a miscarriage, I mean, there's certain um, medical advice that's going to be given in terms of how long you should wait, but um, when you're ready to resume relations with your spouse um, is going to be an individual mm-hmm. kind of experience. And, and you do have some hormones going around with both. Right. So, you know, there may be, I don't know, is there a lack of desire sometimes with the treatments? Do you know I, people? I really can't say from a medical perspective. Um, there might be in terms of just emotionally just feeling so devastated it's not something that is um able to be experienced um in a joyful way you know for for a while but mm-hmm. um, right and and i can definitely say that if you're someone that's been going through infertility and has had a lot a hard time getting pregnant it it does it is like a chore when you when you know when you want to when you're intimate when you're ovulating you need to you need to be together with you need to have sex with your husband right and sometimes you're tired or whatever and it doesn't matter it's, you know, it's a job that you have to do because you have a goal of getting pregnant, and it's very stressful. It creates a lot of stress on the relationship oftentimes with these kind of things. It definitely can take the romance out of it. <laughs> when we had Monica Novak on, you know, who wrote the Good Grief Club, in her book she has a segment in there where she buys her husband a pair of boxer shorts, and he's like, what are these? Right, <laughs> and she says, "Well, I've heard your sperm count's higher if you wear boxer shorts." So oh, and you know, there's all sorts of myths of things you can do, and then it becomes very scientific. And yes, the romance definitely flies out the window. <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, I mean, it, it's definitely uh, something that shows the resiliency of a couple. 
when they go through that. Yeah. And then every month when you find out you're not pregnant, it's another stressor. Right. Because your whole life is, is consumed with getting pregnant and caring full-term and having a healthy child. Your life becomes consumed with this. Absolutely. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I think also men can feel is it rejection because, um, you know, they're, they're not, I mean, they're having the emotional experience, but they're not having the physical, you know, ups and downs. So, uh, you know, you know the, they want to be loved and taken care of and, and that kind of thing. And sometimes we women have to take care of ourselves at certain points a little more than we are them, I think. Well, it's the, the focus just switches. Well, Kira, uh, I wanted to make sure we got one last email in before we end the show. Uh, it's from uh, Shelly from Detroit, Michigan, and Shelly said um, that she had a miscarriage five months ago uh, after an automobile accident, and she said that she was unconscious for two weeks and never got to see the baby, and she wanted to ask. She says that uh, it's been uh, a few months now, and I keep looking at other babies and thinking, is that what my baby looked like? Uh, I'm feeling like I'm really feeling crazy. Do you have any thoughts for me? Is that normal? So she had a miscarriage, and then and then didn't get to see. It. Do most people see the miscarriages, or how does that go? Um, you know, there's different research that's that's been published in terms of how to handle if you end up having to have a late um, if you have a late miscarriage and you have to actually deliver the baby, even though it's not a viable. I mean, mm-hmm. even though it's not um, alive. Mm-hmm. And some of the research does show that seeing the child, it does allow for that closure mm-hmm. and having a funeral and having, um, you know, a, a place to bury the child. Um, and other um, experiences or other hospitals, depending on their policies, maybe that is not something that happens. So, you know, unfortunately, this this particular person, Shelly, I'm so sorry about, about your experience, um, didn't have that opportunity. So I think for her at this point that this reaction is, um, you know, kind of showing that maybe she would have benefited from the opportunity, but now that she's a few months out and she wasn't able to, there's probably some closure that she needs on the experience. Um, whether I don't know if she had a funeral for the child or what what type of um, process she went through after this experience, but maybe some type of ceremonial closure might help her. Um, you, what do you think? What do you I, I think you're right. I think that might ritual. be a good idea. What do you think, Heidi? Absolutely, some ritual or, or ceremonial closure. I totally agree with that. And you know, for some reason, when you're trying, when you've got infertility and miscarriage, everyone you see is either pregnant or with a baby. All of a sudden, your whole world, you just notice it all the time, and it just feels like it's everywhere, and you can't get away from it. Sometimes, you, you know, it's hard because it brings up your own loss. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that'll be tough at uh, Thanksgiving, like we were saying, if you've got family members who've got babies, particularly mm-hmm. new, I should uh, realize that it, it could be difficult. Absolutely. I mean, I remember when I was, my sisters and I all decided we were going to get pregnant at the same time. They both went on to have children they both have two boys i never i could never get pregnant again after secondary infertility and the end of my story is that i ended up adopting and that is definitely an amazing viable way to have more children to have children in your family and when i held my daughter and i got her from china when i held her i said 
I knew right then that this was the daughter I was always meant to have. So that's another thing to think about for people out there that really are, are either want to adopt or are not able to have children. Uh-huh. Yeah, she's a, a darling little girl, Samantha. We really enjoy her. She's three now. Um, but, Shelly, I wanted to say to you, I wanted to give you a couple of ideas, and maybe you two will have some ideas for Shelly, too. I think some of the things that you can do, um, uh, particularly Thanksgiving's coming up next week, you might want to do something in relation to that. If you want family members to join you, you can plant a rosebush somewhere, a tree. If you don't want to do it in your yard, you can ask the city if you can put it somewhere or whatever, you know, find someone that you can donate something. Um, and if you need a place to go, uh, if you would like something to look at, uh, you can do something like that. Or uh, have any of you, either of you got any other ideas? And also, when you do the tree thing or the uh, rosebush, it's kind of nice to read something. You can write something to your child that you never knew and burn it, and you can put it in the soil because the soil, you know, likes I that. Love that. I, oh, I love the idea, Mom, of planting something living mm-hmm. because you can constantly see it and you can see it grow, and it kind of symbolizes... The, the continuing bond you have with the ch- with your child that has died. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to say one of the comments in her note was that, am I crazy? Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's, she, we, we, I would like to um, say to you, no, you're not crazy. You mm-hmm. experienced a devastating ex- loss, yeah. and you are reacting to it um, in your own way. And even the fact that you reached out and emailed uh, Dr. Heidi and, and uh, Dr. Gloria is really showing that you are you're looking for some resolution to this experience, and um, so we wish you all the best, and um, mm-hmm. hope that you uh, you hear everything we're saying and feel our support. Absolutely, because yes, I, this is not crazy; it's normal, and even people who do see the babies will have a difficulty with other babies. Mm-hmm. Or absolutely. You know, absolutely. Well, all right, it's going to be time to end our show in a, in a few minutes. Do you have uh, anything that you would like to finish up the show with, Kira? Well, I just w- want to say thank you so much for the opportunity to be a part of Open to Hope and be a part of this radio show. It's such a wonderful work that the two of you do to help grieving families all over this country. Um, it's such an important um, uh, information source and source of support for people who go through just one of the most difficult times in their lives. Um, in terms of miscarriages and infertility, um, I'd like to close with just a statistic that at least 85% of women who have miscarriages do go on to have normal pregnancies and births. So there is hope out there, and there are a lot of options for people to have children and um, just wish everyone who's going through these types of situations um, all the best on their on their pathway to parenthood. Thank you so much, Kira, for being Thanks, on the show. Kira. It's time to close our show now, and I want to thank our guest, Kira Copperman. Please stay tuned again next week when we will have Finding uh, Hope After Thanksgiving with our guest, Dr. Bernard Siegel. He's a well-known doctor and author, and his new book is Buddy's Candle, a children's book. This show is archived on our blog, thegriefblog.com, as well as the CompassionateFriends.org website. Please stay tuned next Thursday at 9 Pacific, 12 Eastern Standard for more of Healing the Grieving Heart, a show of hope and renewal and support 
Remember, others have been there before you and made it. You can, too. You need not walk alone. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my co-host, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Kira, thank you for your work in helping people heal after miscarriage and infertility. And all the best with KBC Consulting. Thank you. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.